Hey everybody, welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I'm really excited about today's guest, Katie Corrick. So we're going to get right into it. Katie is an award-winning journalist, author, documentarian, television host, podcaster, and newsletter publisher, among other things. She co-hosted NBC's The Today Show for 15 years and was the first woman to solo anchor a network evening newscast. Serving as anchor and managing editor of the CBS Evening News from 2006 to 2011. In 2017, she founded Katie Cork Media, which works with purpose driven brands to create premium content that addresses important social issues like gender equality, environmental sustainability, and mental health. Her number one New York Times bestselling memoir, Going There, was published in October 2021. Katie was twice named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. She's a co-founder of Stand Up to Cancer and has received numerous awards for her cancer advocacy work. She also publishes a daily newsletter, Wake Up Call, and is host of the podcast Next Question with Katie Corrick, which tackles the abortion issue. Katie, where do you get all this energy? <laughs> I think I like to work, Andy. What can I say? I think, um, no, I sometimes wonder that because I really like being productive. And um, I really love what I do. I'm sort of naturally curious and interested in a lot of topics. So I think it keeps me going. And I'm also fascinated by the changing media landscape and how to adapt to the way people are consuming information and how to meet them where they are. So um, I think that's all those things kind of keep me going. And with a landscape that is changing so rapidly today and so weirdly, it would seem like the work could never get, there's never enough to accomplish. It's really amazing when you think about when I got into journalism in 1979. So I'm a couple of years older than you are, and I graduated from college in 79. So we're both, in our <clears throat> we're both in our, around in our 40s. You know, I'm proud to say I'm 65 because, you know, aging is a privilege, right? Mm -hmm. We're lucky. And uh, I think that that we need to kind of embrace our age mm -hmm. and be loud and proud about it. But anyway, um, you know, it was it was so different. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to remember those days where there were three network newscasts and a couple of big national papers local radio stations that did like news at the top of the hour, some all news radio stations. Like I grew up with WTOP in Washington, mm -hmm. NPR. And that was kind of it. That was a PBS obviously. And that was sort of your news diet. And now it is, it is so overwhelming. Just the sheer amount of content out there accosting you on a daily basis. And I could honestly spend the entire day reading stuff on my phone. And sometimes I spend too much time doing that. You know, I get up and I start reading articles and there's so much great writing and print journalism, digitally print journalism going on right now. <clears throat> Whenever I bemoan the, the kind of condition of the landscape, I think of these great articles I'm reading from the Washington Post or the New Yorker, the Atlantic, New York Magazine, Time Magazine, uh, the New York Times. I mean, there's so many great reporters out there doing fantastic work and also doing great analysis, Andy, that that I think if you're interested, you can 
really educate yourself about so many different topics. I think the problem is it's very time consuming, right? Mm-hmm. And people have hopefully have lives. They're taking care of families. They're you know, spending time with their kids. So that's one of the reasons I really wanted to do a newsletter that kind of touched on some of the important things that people should know about. It's not comprehensive by any means, but it allows you to get up and kind of say, okay, I'm, I'm pretty reasonably informed. I can go about my day. You know, it's funny listening to you describe before what you were reading, like if only Sarah Palin had said what you just said, right? Like if, if only that was her answer, maybe her whole life and our world would, would have gone very differently, right? Well, um, it's interesting. I've often, I've often thought about like what she should have said. You know, she should have said, I read, of course, my number one obligation is to my constituents in my home state of Alaska. So I read every Alaska newspaper. And in terms of what really shaped me uh, and my values, I'd have to say the Bible. I mean, even that, right? right? Or or I Google stories all the time, or I, of course, read national. Yeah, I don't know. That's a that's going to be a, a a mystery for the rest of my days. Why she clammed up, and I think she was so pissed off at me at that point. She just she wanted me gone. <laughs> well, I mean, um, the the I think her her uh, campaign uh, manager Rick Davis at the time said something like she thought uh, the questions would be softer. Like, what do you read? Like how, I mean, you cannot get softer than that, right? But what's interesting to me about that episode, and I do, then I want to jump right back to uh, what we were talking about, about your your life and work. Um, Things would be so different today if that occurred, right? Like she would be the hero. You would be the enemy of the people. It would all be fake news. It would be doctored. Yeah, you saw it with your own eyes, but it didn't happen. She never said that, yada, yada, yada. And the instead of having people like Rich Lowry call her performance dreadful, they'd be fundraising off of it. It would just be, because that's where the GOP is today, isn't it? Right. Yeah, you're right. I think uh, they would have said fake news. They would have said it was deceptive editing. They would have said, you know, and, and I think they did say to publish the whole transcript, which we didn't. Um, but I don't know that that's, that's a, but I, I, I think what, what's more probably likely to have happened during that, you know, 2008 to now is people would not be critical that she wasn't well-read. Right. I think expertise, expertise and being knowledgeable and having, and being educated I think, and and sort of science, all these things that for so long were revered have have become less and less important in the public eye for some people, right? There's a good book called The Death of Expertise, which I mean, basically shows that this divide and this sort of class resentment, elitism also means well-educated, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that you know, people don't seem to care when Donald Trump doesn't have a smart answer to a question or says something very pedestrian mm-hmm. or, you know, not not indicating any kind of intellectual heft or ability to be a critical thinker. I don't think people care. They they have this visceral relationship. So, you know, if she had said to me, 
that's a stupid question. That's insulting my intelligence, Katie. You know, I think that would have really played well with the base mm-hmm. um, because there's this this class warfare going on where, um, you know, there's there's disdain for people who are not as educated and are more blue collar, I think, on the part of some elites. And then there's resentment on the part of those people mm-hmm. towards elites. Mm-hmm. So I think that that divide has further been exacerbated in the years following that interview. And I think you're right. I think it would have been sort of interpreted and contextualized in a whole different way. Yeah. And I, I think her today, her lack of intellectual curiosity would, would be worn like a badge of honor. And that's pretty much what the points you're making. It's that the, the we're striving. There's a whole segment of our population today that literally strives for mediocrity, not just in themselves, but in their elected leaders. And that comes back to what they're not getting from their elected leaders. Like they don't, it seems like people don't stop to say, wait a second, I vote for someone to help me. This is not helping me when someone's not bright and they don't care and they're not worldly and they they don't really care about what's important to me. They only care or seem to care what's important to them. But um, I think it's the politics. I think it's the politics of grievance, Andy. I think it's more like being angry about the state of the world and having having politicians and political campaigns speak to that anger, be mm-hmm. a vessel for that anger and grievance. I think that is what Donald Trump is all about. It's not really about what I can do for you. It's what they're doing to us or what they're doing to me. And <clears throat> that's what I think is is animating a lot of voters these days. Yeah. And, and I think that's that's created by income inequality and all sorts of really fascinating kind of um, you know, the demise of unions and mm-hmm. You know, I, anyway, that that could be a whole nother podcast that, with Robert Reich. <laughs> that that certainly could be. Um, so you and I have some interesting parallels. Um, uh, I graduated college with a broadcast journalism degree in 1983. Um, and by the way, I, I totally agree with you. At sixty, almost 63, I'm at the the best mental and physical shape I've been in in my life. So I'm I'm not an ageist. I want to throw that out there for the record. Um, but I think this may come as a shock to my listeners that uh, my broadcast journalism career didn't have the same trajectory as yours. Uh, you were you were a lot more successful. In fact, I had no broadcast journalism career. I, I didn't even pursue that. But interestingly, as I did get older, some of that stuff starts to circle back in my life, which is great. But you and I have something else in common, which is tragedy and loss of a spouse. You may or may not know that my uh, late wife uh, was Adrienne Shelley, who was an actor and a filmmaker. She wrote, directed, and starred in the the film Waitress, which became a big success. Yes, also. and I, 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 I've read a lot about her, loved Waitress, one of my favorite movies, and I'm so sorry. But that was a horrible, horrible situation and a very different, I mean, both have we both lost spouses but in in dramatically different ways yeah and you know my thing over the years has been when i talk with people who experience loss is like it's never a contest it's just loss is loss you know and you no 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 i agree but i do think our i do think the way 
we deal with it and react to it can be quite different. A, a sudden loss versus a prolonged mm-hmm. loss, you know, right. a prolonged sure. illness, um, which I, I think is really interesting. But I agree, like, yes, it's not a contest. Loss is loss. I agree with that. Yeah, like an, a, an old person who loses a pet, you know, it's, it's just loss is loss. And and so I've, I've, I've learned for myself to sort of look at it like, you know, in, in not that woe is me kind of way. Like we all suffer. We all have loss on some level. But I've always been a big admirer of people who, who transcend that tragedy, that loss, and somehow can harness their pain, their suffering um, into helping others, you know, because you sort of, I'm curious, you know, you, you, 1998, you lost your husband, uh, Jay Monahan. He was 42. Um, you had two children, two daughters at the time. I think they were six and two. Um, mm-hmm. Similar to me, my daughter Sophie was two years old when Adrian died. What was it like for you in those those early moments? And at what point did you step back and and say to yourself, "There has to be some good, some serious good to come out of this, for it even to remotely make any sense to me?" I think that you know it, that those nine months that Jay was sick were such a just a kind of a an amalgamation of so many emotions fear and desperation and research and trying to understand and figuring it out and trying to have some sense of normalcy um but i think i think after after he died and also sort of unbridled un, uh, irrational optimism you know like we're going to figure this out um which really precluded any kind of meaningful conversation about death, mm-hmm. about his mortality, about how we were going to go on, what his wishes were. And that's, if you read my book, is sort of one of my big regrets. But I think it was sort of a combination of I had gotten such an education, Andy, in nine months. Uh, I'm I'm a pretty quick learner when I need to be. And I was able to synthesize so much complicated information about cancer. And at the time, you know, monoclonal antibodies or anti-angiogenesis that I, um, I felt like, you know, we had a lot of people watching the Today Show. A lot of people kind of knew about my journey, but I kept it very quiet. And I just felt like it was, a, I felt a real obligation to, to share what I had learned because colon cancer is so preventable. And so that's when I decided I had this bully pulpit. I felt it was almost criminal not to share everything I had learned with my audience, with millions of people because colon cancer is so preventable. And that's when I had this aha moment, like I should get a colonoscopy and explain to people how they can detect this disease early and potentially save their lives. It just seemed kind of like a no-brainer. And so is that the genesis of Stand Up to Cancer? Like, how, how did that come about? So we started the National Colorectal Cancer Research Alliance because colon cancer was kind of, you know, wasn't a sexy disease. I mean, everyone has colons, or most of us do, and yet people don't really want to talk about your bowels and colons and all those things. And so I put together a consortium of experts in the area from Sid Winower, who is like 
discovered the polyp to uh, someone at MD Anderson, Bernard Levin, who was really on the forefront of prevention, to Sandy Markowitz at Case Western Reserve, who was really trying to figure out sort of the genetics of colorectal cancer and just a brilliant guy. And we put together this group and we, I had a lot of fundraisers. We raised a lot of money for colon cancer. I did these big, big events where I kind of leveraged my, my sort of friendliness with a lot of famous people because of my job. You know, I meet all these well-known people and accomplished people. So we did three or four big benefits uh, where I got like, we did all the music from West Side Story and Beyonce sang Somewhere and Vince Gill and Rudy Giuliani when he wasn't insane and the cast of The Sopranos sang Officer Krupke. It was really fun. And when we did these big extravagant fundraisers, which were really, are you really saying fun. You wouldn't, are you saying you wouldn't want Rudy at, an, at another fundraiser now? Poor Rudy. I mean, think about that. That's a whole that is a, that discussion. is poor Rudy. That actually could be the title of the the podcast episode. Oh poor my Rudy. god! But I'm sorry. What Go ahead. Your fundraiser. He's anyway. So we I did a lot of work on colon cancer for several years, probably for almost ten years. And then I said to my friend Lisa Paulson, who at the time was head of the Entertainment Industry Foundation, the philanthropic arm of Hollywood, and I said why don't we do something for all cancers? Because cancer is underfunded. It doesn't seem that way, but only one in 10 promising research proposals is funded by the National Cancer Institute. Let's raise some more money and let's do dream teams. Because one of the things I noticed <clears throat> is research is very siloed in academic institutions, in pharmaceutical companies, in you know, genetics, companies, etc. <clears throat> and so I said, why don't we form dream teams focused on various cancers and let the mandate be collaboration instead of competition. And we can move science forward faster mm -hmm. if people are pooling their resources and their brain power and their tissue samples. So that's when we established Stand Up to Cancer and have raised a lot of money um, well, it says on your website seven hundred million. Like that's yeah, that's not a lot of money. That's that's a lot of money. That is that's a, a whole lot, lot that's of money. A lot of cabbage, <laughs> but it goes. You know, we our research has contributed to the FDA approval of nine new cancer fighting drugs, and um, you know, it's just something that I really wanted to do. And I teamed up with Sherry Lansing and Lisa and. Uh, I mean, all these incredibly sort of these powerhouse women and we got it done, which I think is, uh, you know, really, you know, something I'm enormously proud of. Well, and, and as you should be, because cancer affects probably every family in some way, some more, you know, in a primary way, others in more distant relatives. But um, <clears throat> the thing I've always wondered, especially when you see like, a, um, a vaccine come out a year after a, uh, a, a virus like COVID. Like, what makes cancer so difficult to find a cure for? I mean, we've been trying for so long. I think cancer is so many different diseases in so many different biologies. And you would think that that 
more could be done. What was it when Richard Nixon declared the war on cancer? I think that was back in 1973, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I think it's just it behaves very differently in, in different people. And I think there's so much involved, your genetics, your, you know, underlying illnesses that you may not even know about. But I do think that the trend now is to look at how cancers behave and what they have in common and how to do more sort of targeted therapies. You know, for so long, it was that scorched body uh, approach where, you know, you just flush the system with poison, really hoping the healthy cells mm -hmm. will grow back and, and, and that you can kill the, the devil cells, if you will. And now I think there's so much interesting research. Most of our research at standup is now immunotherapy, which is bolstering the body's own immune system to fight the cancer. And that is obviously an incredibly exciting area that used to be kind of mocked in the early days. You know, the problem with that, it can kind of make your immune system go into overdrive and then create some autoimmune issues, right? Where, where your body's attacking healthy, healthy right. cells and mm -hmm. healthy tissues. But, you know, I, I think we're making progress. And I think, you know, people's lifestyle also has a lot to do with, right. with cancer. And, and, but it's just such a wily, devious disease. The minute you think you've got it, it's like, oh, no, I'm going to outsmart this. So I just think it is very tough nut to crack. But I do think real progress is being made. And is there a, a, a window of time like on the horizon where you see not necessarily a cure, but something similar to COVID where the, 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 the impact of it, the, the, the symptoms, the, the finality of it is is greatly changed so that people can live with cancer and not fear cancer the way the way we did COVID in 2020? I mean, I think that's already started. I don't think there's going to be a big front page headline in the New York Times, cancer is cured. <laughs> Finally, I think that there are many therapies that have come down the pipeline that are in use or in clinical trials that allow people to live with the disease, mm -hmm. right? That are managing cancer. And I think that we're gonna see cancer as a chronic illness that can be dealt with, in some cases eradicated and cured, and other cases just managed like a chronic disease. Mm -hmm. You know, I have friends who, I have a friend who has lung cancer and she's on a daily chemo and she is living with lung cancer. Wow, that's incredible. And, and so I think more and more we'll see cancer therapies take that approach. And perhaps that will lead, as I said, to some cases there will be, you know, people who go into remission. Mm -hmm. But I think it's it's been such a, a slow, methodical advance toward better treatments that sometimes the progress isn't as as appreciated as it should be. Mm hmm. Well, I think um, it's, you know, I mean, it's born out of tragedy, but, but the work you're doing is very commendable and, and necessary. And to your point, it often takes famous people to get shit done in this country because people like listening to famous people, you know, and, and uh, 
but not everybody does it. You know, I think I sort of started a trend of like, I always joked to my producers and said, I draw the line at pap smears. But, um, you know, <laughs> I, I would, but I, you know, I had a mammogram on the Today Show. And I think, you know, back then we had a place in the culture, I think, where a lot of people had these this parasocial relationship with me. They felt like they knew me in many ways mm -hmm. they did. And they saw me going through this. And I, I had a really unique opportunity, honestly, to reach a lot of people mm -hmm. with a very personal story that was completely pure in my, you know, intentions to help other people mm -hmm. to save lives. And, you know, after I did my colonoscopy, there was a 20% increase in, in colonoscopies, according to the University of Michigan. And when I hear that, I think, wow, I have actually saved some lives. Yeah, no, no. I have actually prevented people from dying at 42 and leaving their daughters without a father or without well, a but mother. But that's, that's or, my point about, like, people who, who transcend their own tragedy to call attention to something. I mean, my, my friend Fred Guttenberg, who you obviously Oh, know, I love Fred. You know, he's a, pr a prime example of someone who went through what I consider to be the worst uh, tragedy in the world, losing a child, and yet in harnessed Parkland. his... Yeah, at the Parkland School shooting in, in, uh, on Valentine's Day, 2017. You know, there are people that just when they get knocked to the ground in the most horrific way, somehow can stand up and say, okay, I'm not, I am not only not going to let this tragedy define me and own me, I'm going to save other lives from it. And that takes a lot. I, I mean, you know, uh, having been through a tragedy myself, I understand what it's like those first minutes, those first days, those first weeks. Like, you're not thinking about saving the world in those moments. But but some people at some point do get up one morning and say, Something's, something has to happen from this. And so, you know, people like Fred, people like yourself, um, yeah, you, you save lives. I think you have you have to have a place to put the anger and the pain. And you also, you know, I think it's, I'm not going to say it's selfish, but it's, it's a form of self care where nothing gives you purpose like a tragedy. And I think that for Fred, for so many people, you know, Mark Barden is a very good friend of mine. He started Sandy Hook Promise. Um, I mean, gosh, I know so many people who have turned their pain into purpose mm -hmm. and, and I think it's also like a survival mechanism because, you know, if you can't be productive, if you can't try to do something, it is, I think it'll eat you alive, right? And I can't imagine for people like Fred and Mark and Nicole and all these people who've lost children, first of all, I think they find community in each other. Mm -hmm. And secondly, you know, it's so unspeakable. They become advocates and their advocacy is so powerful because they speak from from real life experience. So, yes, I, I there's so many people I admire, Andy, who have done incredible work as a result of personal pain. And so your uh, memoir going there, which came out last mm -hmm. fall, uh, again, <clears throat> number one New York Times bestseller, I've always been fascinated by people who write memoirs because memoirs are, are written at all kinds of ages. Like, you know, you'll see a pop star who writes their memoir at 25. Yeah. It's like, what yeah. are you writing yeah. about? You don't, you haven't yeah. lived yet. You can't write a memoir. Right. And so what 
made wine now for you what made this point in your life the right time to tell your personal story i think it was a both a pragmatic reason and personal given the fragmented media landscape it's very hard to become a household name today right i mean it's it's everything is so niche and i thought about well i had people who grew up watching me on the today show who were maybe young career women in particular who I felt like I was always speaking to. When I, in my mind's eye, thought about who is in my audience, I would think about the young associate getting ready for work in the morning. (laughs) And then, of course, I had my contemporaries. And I thought, first of all, I'm sort of more independent. I'm free to speak my mind. I don't have kind of the responsibilities and the obligations of representing a network you know, I'm, I'm fully out on my own. You know, I think I was thinking I'm 65 and I've lived a life that has been really interesting and unexpected. And some of the things I write about, I think might be very instructive to a broad swath of people, whether it's the ambition I had early on and the persistence I had getting into a career that didn't necessarily say I was the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know, dealing with sudden fame. That's not going to happen to everybody, but it's sort of interesting Mm -hmm. dealing with a husband who had a terminal illness, a sister dealing with aging parents, dealing with what turned out to be not exactly a hostile work environment at CBS, but a, a culture clash for sure. And I just thought that, that it was, a good time for me to kind of tell my story. You know, so much has been written about me and I've been so kind of uh, objectified and not in a sexual bait, but objectified as almost a a caricature. And, you know, I think I've been underestimated in some cases and I think I've been stereotyped and, and kind of compartmentalized in a way as sort of the perky, friendly, sunshiny person. And I just, I I think we're so, all of us are so multifaceted and multidimensional. And I like, as John said, you're a big thinker. And I do think about things a lot. And I wanted to share sort of my perspective on things that I thought would hopefully be useful or interesting Mm -hmm. or thought provoking for other people in terms of things that had happened in my career or things I handled or what I would have done differently or things that I'm not proud of or things I am proud of, you know? And I think, you know, I'm really very proud that I was quite honest and transparent about a lot of things and about my career and about sort of a life in full. Mm -hmm. And, and it was fun to do it. And I also wanted to do it for my kids. You know, I Mm -hmm. wanted I wanted my children to to learn more about me. You know, they grew up with a lot of obviously this stuff going on, but they were kids and now they're full blown adults. They're my daughter's 31. My other daughter is 26. And, you know, there's something cool about I love family history. I love reading my parents letters and looking through their things. And to be able to have that in a book, I just thought. It's kind of a gift to them, 
Mm-hmm. No, and you know, it, you're you're so right, and I totally identify with that. I had recently directed a documentary for HBO about Adrian, and I I always tell people that that's the greatest gift I could give my daughter is for her to have this film that she can watch for the rest of her life at different times in her life and learn about her yeah. mom. And so I think you doing that and doing it in large part for your children truly is the the best gift you can give them because how you know, pages and pages and pages of, of just a life that would never come out the same way just in conversation because you, you're yeah. not going to dig deep and go to the places that you would just sitting at the pool, you know, in a, in summer and having a conversation, you know, when they come over to visit. like. And also, you know, I, I wanted it to be instructive for young journalists, particularly for young female journalists. Mm-hmm. And I just ran into somebody today and said, she's a producer at CNN. She said, oh, yeah, so helpful to read this. And, and to kind of remind, remind people, it, it, was, it, it wasn't easy. And there were a lot of troglodytes in those. It, it, and it was still pretty male-dominated. Right. And especially, a, I mean, gosh, Hollywood, of course. But even television news was, it was tricky to navigate where your worth is based on these very superficial qualities sometimes, mm-hmm. right? And men in charge picking women they thought were hot. It, it was still kind of fairly sexist, and in some cases, very sexist environment. And mm-hmm. it's certainly not a diverse environment, which mm-hmm. is changing a lot and has started changing in recent years. But, you know, I think it's a good reminder to people like what things were like. And and maybe they can say, hey, we appreciate that you endured and you kept pushing and wasn't always easy. Well, on the gods of podcasts would hate, hate me if I didn't bring this up uh, to that point. You know, you worked with Matt Lauer. He obviously went through a very public and controversial case of sexual harassment and all the stuff you just mentioned. When when all that was going down, like, I can't imagine what that was like for you, having worked with him and being having it be in your home, so to speak, hitting hitting home in the way it did. And I'm not going to ask you, you know, like, did you know? Did you have a sense? All that. It, it, I'm curious to know, like, when it's when something like that strikes home, got to be very, very powerful in in ways that if it's, you know, like if it's elsewhere in somebody else's home, it's got to be different. Yeah, you know, I don't know if it was sort of willful ignorance or what. But I remember people calling me and asking me about Matt and me saying, honestly, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think Matt was one of those people. And, you know, you've got to remember, I left in 2006 and this happened in 2017. But I also think mores were different. There were a lot of relationships happening. And I write about this in my book. It was a little loosey-goosey in terms of policies at some mm-hmm. of these places, workplaces all across the country, not just television news. But I think television news was a prime example because you were working long hours, mm-hmm. traveling on the road. And I think for people who are inclined that way, probably it was a lot easier to partake in that kind of behavior. You know, I, I think about Matt a lot. And I, I think in the book, I really tried to to show Matt as a sort of a 360 version because Matt has 
a lot of wonderful qualities, you know, really kind, incredibly responsible, always gracious, always really nice to everyone on the Today Show team, you know, behind the cameras. And yet he was clearly deeply flawed. Mm -hmm. And and it I think that I, I remember I went on the Today Show for my book and I said it was disgusting. And yes, his behavior is disgusting, but I think more than that, it's just deeply disappointing for me and confusing as to why he allowed himself to behave that way. People are complicated, you know? It's, it's like you said, people are flawed. We're all flawed, and hopefully our flaws are not those kind of flaws. They're, they're just imperfections, but some people's imperfections uh, are on a much bigger scale and, and are really hurtful to other people. And, and uh, I think I, I agree. And, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to some people who suffered as a result mm -hmm. of his behavior. But I also think Matt was enabled by a system that for too long didn't take this kind of behavior seriously that turned a blind eye to it to, the, you know, in, in some cases encouraged it, this sort of whole cultural aspect and what was considered okay and what wasn't. And talked to a woman named Marion Cooper, who is a professor at Stanford and, you know, in permissive environments in permissive workplace envi environments, it's easy for people or it creates an environment where you can cross the line. Mm -hmm. And I think clearly Matt crossed that line and why he did that and, and why he did it with impunity for, for some time. I think he was extremely secretive and compartmentalized about his behavior. Mm -hmm. But I think it, it was part of the culture. So it's too bad because, as I said, he has a lot of really wonderful qualities and was a very good friend to me. And that was really difficult. I, it was a very, very confusing and incredibly upsetting time for me. And so speaking of the workplace, five years ago, you, f you started Katie Couric Media. And that's another thing to me that I, it's like, at this stage uh, in your career, what was the genesis of that? Like what, what made that time the right time to go and do all the things you're doing in terms of you know, podcasts, documentaries, newsletters, et cetera, that fall under that banner? I think I had done, I was so fortunate and feel so blessed, honestly, Andy, that I did these great jobs in network news. I was a Pentagon correspondent. I worked in local news before that. I did the Today Show. I did the CBS Evening News. I did a daytime talk show, which just was not me. It was just not a good fit for me. And, and then I went and worked for Yahoo because I saw that the media landscape was changing and I didn't want to feel like I was riding on the back of a dinosaur that it was hanging on with by my fingernails to a dying medium honestly uh, an important medium but declining right because when you work for a declining anything it usually isn't as fun right <laughs> and I realized that I probably as Thomas Wolfe said could not go home again I really love to work I really like to talk to people like I'm really enjoying our conversation. I, it, it, it just, this is my idea of fun. <laughs> and um, it's my idea of fun and, too, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just curious. I, 
I want to learn. And I think through my years doing what I've done, I've become pretty good at helping people understand complicated topics, synthesizing mm -hmm. things, some honestly from my work in cancer. And I, I'm, I find people really fascinating and I find topics really fascinating. And I always strive to understand things better. Mm -hmm. And so one of the picture. topics, one of the topics that you've tackled recently is, is the abortion issue and, and Roe. You, you were doing that through a podcast series called mm -hmm. Next, Next Question with Katie Couric. And so, well, that's, that's my pod, that's sort of the overall podcast that I've been doing for a while. But under that banner, Andy, I did Abortion, the Body Politic, where mm -hmm. we did six special episodes. But generally, I cover you know, do interviews, I cover big issues like vaping or, you know, far right extremism, sort of, I, it runs the gamut, but this was sort of a special thing under that umbrella. Mm -hmm. So I want to shift gears for a second. I, I, could, I could literally talk to you all day, uh, and I hope you'll come back again, but I did want to shift a little bit. Uh, I'm sure you've been watching the hearings, the J6 hearings. Uh, would love a quick thought on that. Like, where do you think it's moving the needle? Do you think this guy is ever going to get indicted you know tr trump being this guy i do think i do think it's moving the needle i was just reading tom jones has a terrific newsletter from the pointer institute andy since you're interested in media and politics you should definitely subscribe to it so shout out to Dom to tom i was just reading about how it is moving the needle i think they've done an incredible job some of the production aspects my friends are working on that but like I didn't quite understand why they had those two witnesses come out and they didn't immediately just start talking to them. But I think they're very, very methodically trying to lay things out for people who aren't like you and me, mm -hmm. who are like reading these things, uh, you know, every day and kind of sucking up any new information about what's happened. And I think they've done an extraordinary job. I think, gosh, I think Adam Kinzinger's closing remarks mm -hmm were awesome. I think Liz Cheney has done a great job. I think everyone on the committee has really been stellar. I do think it's starting to move the needle. I've been reading this for a while, maybe like even last couple of weeks that Rupert Murdoch seems to be turning on Trump. Yep. And I had read before that he seemed to be kind of cozying up to Ron DeSantis a little bit. But if you read the Wall Street Journal editorial, the mm -hmm. New York Post editorial, mm -hmm. I mean, that is a huge departure for them. And you start to feel like the worm has turned. Some Trump supporters I read are still like him, but mm -hmm. think he has too much baggage. Mm -hmm. I don't understand enough about what the Justice Department can do and what Georgia is doing. And mm -hmm. it seems like, I mean, it seems like to any lay person, there is enough evidence to charge him with something, mm -hmm. you know, I guess dereliction of duty is a military term. I, I, I just feel like something should happen where this man was so grossly irresponsible, so malevolently irresponsible that he should not be able to run for office again. And I think, I think it's been a really proud moment for Congress to watch these people who are representing what is right. Mm -hmm. oh, protecting versus, democracy and the Constitution yeah, and I the mean, rule of law. That is a very um, noble and important and impressive. I guess the question is, you know, Tucker Carlson 
belittles these hearings and doesn't even show them. And mm-hmm. you haven't heard Sean Hannity. And at some point, where is the decency, right? Have you no decency? Who said that? Wasn't that during the McCarthy hearings? Mm-hmm. Well, it's tribalism at its worst, you know, toxic tribalism. It's no matter anything is OK as long as it's our guy, even the death of democracy. Right. And the rule of law. That's OK. It's all OK because it's our team. It's all okay until it's not right right? until it uh, until it's like, oh, holy shit. So let's circle back to uh, let's circle back to Rudy (laughs) for one minute. Uh, Yeah. uh, What what did happen to Rudy? You know, I covered him on 9-11, you know, obviously. And, you know, he was America's mayor. Mm -hmm. He stood up on that pile with George W. Bush. He showed strength and resilience. And I don't know. I think he's lost his mind, Andy. Yeah, well, that's the only logical explanation. It's it's probably not rocket science. He's seems like he's lost his mind. Yeah, somebody's writing a book about him, which I, I really want to read and interview this person when it comes out. I don't think it's come out yet. But, you know, it's this desperate desire for relevance and to be in the arena and at the epicenter. And all I can think of is he's sort of lost it. And it's, it would be sad if it weren't so dangerous and disruptive. Well, you hear, you know, all your life you hear about, you know, the phrase uh, power corrupts. And we might be witnessing that in its most prime example in, in Rudy Giuliani, yeah. you know. And Donald Trump. And Trump. So, you know, power corrupts the corrupt even more than they were already were. Right, right. So before we finish... I want to do something which I think is always fun and a learning experience for me. Uh, music is uh, very important to me, and I think music is a window into somebody's soul. So I want to ask, what is Katie Couric's top five artists? Oh, God. My husband was giving me a hard time because I still have a CD player, and so I, I listen to old CDs a lot. My top five artists are, in no particular order, Andy, Ella Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra, Emmy Lou Harris, Linda Ronstadt, and Dolly Parton together. You're getting a, a, many thumbs up right here in the studio. <laughs> People are thrilled obviously, with those answers. The, obviously, the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And God, I have Mary Chapin Carpenter on a lot because I just, first of all, I love her personally. Mm-hmm. She played at my sister's funeral. She lives in Virginia. And I find her voice just incredibly soothing. But I like a lot of other artists, too. But I'm kind of, you know, an old soul. I like listening to kind of classic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm not as up on sort of current music as I wish I were. Well, I, I interviewed Eric Swalwell a few weeks ago. And oh, yeah. one of his, he's, the first person he said was, Taylor Swift. And I was like, really? I was not expecting that. And he goes, oh, no, I'm a Swifty. And I was like, wow, you even call her a Swifty. You're a Swifty. But that, I wonder if that's because, does he have daughters? Oh, his children are really young. So, no, he's a, he's a Swifty all on his own. So, which is great. I mean. I love Taylor Swift. My daughters love Taylor Swift and Haim and all these other. And I, but I do find that, you know, when I really sort of was much more up on popular music, it was when my daughters were teenagers. And yeah, well, you I get to learn through what through them. Yeah, yeah. Katie, you are uh, an extraordinary person, and uh, this was a big thrill for me to talk about your life and your experiences. And I 
I'm honored you're here. I'm thankful that you're here and I hope you'll come back. Well, it was really fun talking to you, Andy. And it's funny how you kind of get to know people on Twitter, right? Big right. Twitter's my life. <laughs> I've got to know some amazing people on Twitter. Right? I mean, it can be a cesspool for sure, but it can also be a place. I think I, I am always amazed at how funny a lot of people are and clever mm -hmm. and creative. And and interesting. So thank you for having me. And I'm I'm glad that you that you slipped into my DMs, as the kids would say. Likewise. Take care and enjoy your day. Okay. Thanks, Andy. Bye bye. Bye. So there you have it, episode nine in the can. I want to take this time once again to thank our incredible guest, Katie Corrick, whose memoir, Going There, is now available in paperback. Also want to thank Maddie Rosenberg, Jen Hamoud. Cricket Langell, and Andy Hollander. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a message at 845-307-7446 or email us at backroomandy at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Andy Ostroy. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. <laughs>